The reading for the day comes from Luke 19, 29 through 40. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rolled along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. This whole season of Lent has been culminating towards this week. This week, starting today, is called Holy Week, and it's this time in Jesus' ministry where after doing months or years, depending on the timeline you trust, of ministry out in the countryside and with peasants and working class folks, he gathers all of them and they head straight for the heart of power in their area, the city of Jerusalem, during the time of Passover. It's a time when tensions are high and um, the religious storytelling is at its, its peak for the year but it's also when the Roman government is really pressing in on them to try and exert their control and force. And so Jesus is bringing his people into Jerusalem, marching in. And today, on Sunday of Holy Week, sometimes called Palm Sunday, we have what is sometimes called the triumphant entry. And this this entry of triumph, this uh, declaration of victory and of God's um, power and Jesus's, uh, Jesus's ministry, it's a big culminating moment. Now, we've been preparing for this moment through the season of Lent in our series, Act Out. We've been looking, actually, at the church that came after this moment to see how the followers of Jesus took those teachings and the life of Jesus and the relationship they had and built together the church, the early church, so close to the teachings and context of Jesus' life and really putting to test a lot of what they had learned. We've discerned a number of patterns that we see in the disciples, ways to act out our faith, not merely to assent to a belief, but to really show up in our faith and live like disciples of Jesus. But today, we're actually going to zero in on this story of Jesus bringing his followers to Jerusalem as kind of a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. 
And we're going to hold it up against the lessons that we've learned in the book of Acts to see if those core practices of the disciples are really reflective of the ministry that we see in Jesus' time. Now this day, if you're not familiar with Palm Sunday, <coughs> is, um, is when, as we said, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And what what the passage is that you just heard is this description. It's in all four of the Gospels. Um, they all have their own version, but it's, it's this story that seems really foundational to this conflict, which will build over the course of the week and, and end up at the cross first in the death of Jesus, in the public lynching of Jesus, and then ultimately in the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the declaration of the victory of life and goodness and God and liberation. So it's like this, this really high-energy moment. Now, you may have heard of this referred to as Palm Sunday. That is a more standard title for this day. The reason it's called that is because in this story, when people are laying down their cloaks on the street and they're shouting, the multitude is a phrase you hear a lot. A lot of them are waving palm branches. And we've started calling Palm Sunday here at Zao Protest Sunday. Because when you really break down what's happening, you see that this is not just a spontaneous, um, kind of preordained, miraculous event, as it's often treated. We have a tendency in the Christian tradition, especially in modern American Christianity, to hyper-spiritualize everything that Jesus did, to pretend that it's a... It's just a miracle of God's providence that like all of these people happen to show up and they all happen to have this same symbol that they were waving around and they all happen to coordinate uh, this event, but not with any human effort. It all must have been magical and divine and above our pay grade. When in fact, looking not too deeply at all, you can see that this is a deeply organized event, an expression of power, strategically placed. Um, you know, we have, for instance a Roman procession coming in from the other side of the city at the same time with war horses and military might, and then Jesus coming in from this side of the city on a donkey with palms and peasants. So when we see that beautiful political theater that Jesus is orchestrating, we know that this is less of a random expression of palm waving and more a powerful, planned event of human and divine protest in, this, in the face of systems of empire. Now, as we celebrate Protest Sunday, often when we're in person, we wave things around too on Protest Sunday at Zao. But instead of handing out palm fronds, we hand out protest signs. So these signs that you may have seen um, in protests, you may have held them in protests if you're part of the local Zao community, or you may have seen them in photos if, um, if you haven't been able to be with us in person. These signs were all first printed for protest Sunday because we knew they would come in handy. And so uh, this is something that we, that we celebrate, this very particular expression of Christianity which confronts empire through strategic, coordinated, politically potent protest. If you want to hear a little bit more about the nature of that protest, you can go back to some previous Palm Sunday um, sermons that I've preached. We have them all in the podcast. We have the archive um, on our website and <coughs> wherever you get podcasts. 
But I want to complicate this narrative a little further. This is our habit at Zhao, right? We have this narrative that's um, presented by the American Christian, Christian church as like, oh, Jesus, humble on a donkey. He's so chill. And, you know, everybody's waving palms. What a miracle. And we're like, let's complicate that a little bit and talk about how it was a strategically coordinated, brilliant political strategy. But I'd like to complicate that even further now that um, some of us have been in the habit of, of thinking of it this way. Um, and again, if you're new to this way of thinking of it, I welcome you back to those resources. You can listen to my sermons, or better yet, there's a book called The Last Week by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. That's where most of my learning comes from on this, um, or at least that was where I first had my mind blown on this, and so it's a great resource if you want to look into that aspect. But how can we further complicate this story in a holy way? I think that, again, we're going to really take this apart and hold this up to our learning from the book of Acts, because Assuming that the early church was right about what it takes to be a disciple and that we have been learning those lessons together, we should see that play out in Jesus' ministry in this snapshot of Protest Sunday. So let's find out, shall we? This series, based on what we have observed in Acts, we have determined that part of what it takes, we don't say this list is comprehensive, but part of what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus to follow in the teachings and life of Jesus, to build the church in the model of the kingdom, is to show up, kick in, spread the word, build a culture of redemption, and offer radical praise. So we'll take those one at a time. First, show up. Now, this one is really embedded in that understanding of Protest Sunday as an organized protest. This is a strategic effort. It's not random happenstance. When Jesus is talking to his disciples in preparation for this day, which he wouldn't have needed preparation if it was just sort of a random, spontaneous event, he says, go into town and you're going to see a cult. It's a very specific cult. I'm going to give you some details about it. You'll see this cult tied up. Go take that cult. If anyone bothers you about it, be like, well, the Lord needs this cult. And they'll let you have it. Then you come back, we'll head in. Now, we didn't need to be given this detail, but we were. And I think that one of the reasons it's included in Scripture is because it is evidence of the forethought and the planning and the strategy behind this event. Jesus had talked to some people, had built the networks. Now, we don't know if Jesus had a direct conversation with the owner of this cult, but we do know that this cult, uh, the, the, the person who owned this animal, was prepared to let strangers <laughs> take it away in service of Jesus' needs in ministry. And so the scriptures tell us that when the disciples went, they asked, or while well, they were confronted, then they, they offered the explanation, and then they went on their merry way with this, with this animal. We see that there are so many factors, actually, in this. Because in addition to what Jesus needs with that cult, we also see that the multitudes show up. These are huge crowds that have come with Jesus, and they're all participating in a kind of coordinated action. They have palm fronds that they are waving in the air. They have 
cloaks that they are throwing down on the road to like make this sort of peasant red carpet for Jesus. Um, they even have a coordinated chant, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so chanting, uh, plant-based protest signs, uh, a route, a paved with coats route, and a vehicle, I feel like that's a pretty well-coordinated action, yeah? I, as some of you know, in a past life was uh, a community organizer in my day job, and I know how much it takes to build the kind of network that can result in a huge action like this. When I first arrived at the org that I ended up working for for five years, we could turn out about 100 people to a big event. And over the course of five years, we built and built and built. Eventually, right before I left, we had our first large event that drew over 1,000 people to it. And it was amazing. But it also wasn't a one-time experience. The things that made that event with 1,000 people possible were all of the little practices, the little meetings, the emails, the phone calls, the relationships, all built over the course of years. And the people who had contributed to that were hundreds. If I had been the only one to contribute to those things, there's no way we ever could have gotten to those numbers. But there were vast networks of people that kept coming on board and showing up in these big and small ways in a continuous sort of way. Hours of showing up with their unique gifts and contributing to the effort. That's what made a thousand people showing up in one moment possible. And so when we think about these big type of events, these big protests or these massive moments, it's easy to focus on just that one day. But what made it possible for Jesus to have this big coordinated effort with the multitude was actually the years of organizing that they were doing together, the hundreds of people that had contributed, the ways that each person had brought their unique gifts and their talents and their time over and over and over again. And a lot of it wasn't just the sexy palm waving. It was the really unsexy work of staying late to clean up after big gatherings, or showing up to planning sessions to handle the logistics of ministry, or figuring out where they were all going to sleep that night. Jesus and the disciples and all the followers here were participating in a culture of ministry and collective power that required showing up. Not just for the big day, but for the months and years beforehand for the day-in, day-out work of building a community that is so powerful that it can have these big, disruptive moments of beauty. This is also the power on which the church itself is built once Jesus ascends into heaven and has to hand it off to the leadership. This is not just Jesus' big day. This is a big day for the community. And they've all been working on this for such a long time. They know how to take over uh, once Jesus ascends, because they've been showing up to learn and to take responsibility for days or weeks or months or years. And so my question to you then, observing that showing up was a foundational part of Jesus' ministry that we see play out on Palm Sunday, is if you had been a believer then, 
If you had been moved by Jesus' message of kingdom liberation then, would you have shown up? Not only to the big, sexy parade, but to the planning meetings, to the late-night debriefs, to the day-in, day-out work of making it all possible. Would you have shown up? Now, at the risk of accidentally comparing myself to Jesus, I have to confess that I'm feeling a little bit vulnerable right now in this, in our own community here at Zao. If you haven't heard yet, I am super pregnant. <laughs> I uh, am due this summer, and Cameron and I are about to go on leave for 12 weeks. Now, we're not ascending into the clouds or anything, but the hope is that we can have some un, un, uh, uninterrupted time to bond with our baby, to heal my body, um, and to take leave that we feel is, is justice for all workers. And so we are asking ourselves now, all right, here is a big moment for Zhao. This is a big year for Zhao where we figure out, have we built a culture of showing up? Will the broader Zhao community step up to lead, not only in these big moments, but in the nitty-gritty and the day-to-day -day that make things like Sunday morning possible, so that the big moments and the joy of community remain? This is a time of, of uncovering for our community, to see where we're at and where we're willing to grow. And we will stumble, but I have faith that the discipleship that we are called to as followers of Jesus and as a community at Zao will inspire us to do what we say that we're going to do, that we'll show up for one another, that this community doesn't rest just on me or Cameron, but that we will see in really intimate ways all of the different contributions that some of you have been giving for years or months and that some of you are starting to give just now. But take this as an invitation to, like all of the folks who made Palm Sunday possible, start showing up in the small ways so that the big ways can stay big. All right, lesson two that we learned from the disciples, kick in. Now, this is when we talked about not only contributing with our time and our talent, but the radical provision of material support, which includes money. Now, the, the premise here is that across our collective, God has given us everything we need for radical provision. But that that radical provision and abundance begins with you and me individually committing ourselves out of a trust in that abundance to kick in more than the world says is possible, knowing that when we do, we'll all thrive. This is a big leap of faith into collectivism. It's boldness of generosity. And it's reflected here, I think, in some pretty profound ways. Now, I mentioned that colt, that donkey, <coughs> that's in the text. That was one of the things that Jesus needed materially provided to make this work. And in the traditional reading of Palm Sunday, you hear a lot of people being like, <coughs> oh, Jesus, so humble on a donkey. And there is something to be said for that because you do have this juxtaposition of Jesus on a donkey coming in from one side of the city and the Romans on their war horses coming in from the other side. It's a different image for sure. It's a different concept of what power is, but it's not a particularly humble one. <laughs> so 
Luke doesn't bother explaining this to his readers, but the other gospel authors really go in to make sure that you understand the reference that's being made here. They say that Jesus rode in on this donkey to fulfill a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. We'll read it now. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there are... Uh, a lot of folks who read this and go, whoa, like what are the odds? That was written like 600 years before Jesus. How did the prophet know that Jesus was going to do this? This is the fulfillment of like mystical magic. <clears throat> and like that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that Jesus had probably read this. <laughs> But Jesus is choosing to use this imagery, that it's not a, a mystical foretelling so much as a declaration of the kind of king the Messiah would be. And Jesus saying, yes, I am that Messiah. I come in on this donkey. So he's flexing here, actually, saying, I am the one. I am the one foretold. I am the one sent. I, you will recognize me from the imagery that I bear. The only problem here, Jesus doesn't have a donkey Jesus is functionally homeless, and Luke's gospel is really aggressive in pointing this out. In chapter 9 of Luke, uh, that's where we get Jesus saying, even the foxes have their dens, and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, this isn't a complaint. Um, it's actually a bit of a warning that Jesus is offering. You see, there are lots of people who wanted to follow Jesus, and he was letting them know what it took. He was letting them know about the vulnerability of his way of life. He wasn't homeless in the sense that he was living in the street. He was homeless in the sense that he relied completely and vulnerably on the provision of community. He instructs his disciples, who he's sending out to spread the word and to heal people, he says, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra tunic. And this vulnerability comes with an offering, the teachings of the kingdom and the work of healing people. Go teach, go heal, but rely on others for literally all of your material needs is the instruction. And we're pretty uncomfortable with this kind of public vulnerability. Our culture is so hellbent on self-sufficiency that there's a whole system of morality that we've built around work and earning money, where we tie people's worth to their ability to earn financial assets. And it's completely anathema to the gospel. Jesus says, there is enough out there. And in fact, the way that you're going to get it is through being gifted. And the way that people are going to respond to the gospel is to give materially what they have. Not because they have to, but because they are free to and they want to. And they want to contribute to something bigger than themselves. And they're willing to put their money on the line. They're willing to put their food on the line. They're willing to let you into their homes to house you. This is this radical kicking in. And again, our culture just like has no time for it. In 2013, there was a Canadian uh, sculpture artist who made a sculpture that is known as Homeless Jesus. 
it, it's, it depicts a man, Jesus, uh, on a park bench under a blanket with holes in his feet. And when it was installed for the first time in the USA, uh, residents actually called the cops on the statue, mistaking Jesus for a living homeless person. We are so uncomfortable with material vulnerability. We are so uncomfortable with anyone who brings to light the implication that we owe our generosity to one another. We are so, so uncomfortable with the idea that perhaps the kingdom is built on us kicking in for one another rather than saying everyone has to fend for themselves. And so Jesus, as a discipline, calls his leadership and lives himself as this nomadic, dependent, vulnerable life that requires the kicking in of everyone who encounters it. Now, biblical evidence says that not only were they taken care of, but they were mostly taken care of by women. Women who often made that their primary contribution to the ministry was providing materially and financially. They also got a lot of provision from friends and families of disciples. And it created this culture of kicking in, of vulnerability and generosity, of trust and abundance. A culture of enough, which is God's economy, where there is enough for all by way of offering what you have and knowing that there will be more than enough for everyone once we do. Now this was a radical hallmark of Jesus' ministry, generosity, trust, and abundance, and we see it play out here today on Palm Sunday with this donkey. Dude doesn't even have an extra tunic. So in order to get a donkey, he's going to have to find someone else who will chip in. And so he sends the disciples, they go, they get it, and what they need is given to them by someone who trusts enough to offer what they have colt that has never been ridden on. And it's not some miracle that no one had control over. It's not God's providence that we just passively observe. It's the result of years of building a culture of kicking in, of contribution that made Palm Sunday and every day of Jesus's ministry in the kingdom possible. If the procession had taken place in our community, would you have been part of that network of material generosity necessary to make it happen? Would someone have called you to ask you what you could contribute? Would you have shown up to offer it even if they hadn't? If Jesus had counted on you to throw down financially or materially to make Palm Sunday possible, is that something you'd be prepared to do with your donkey or your cloak or whatever you had. Lesson three, spread the word. Now this is another aspect of Jesus's ministry that does actually get a lot more airtime. Jesus, as I mentioned, sent out the disciples and their gift to the community was one part healing and one part spreading the word. They were greeted with that gift through all the material needs that they had were taken care of. And also, everyone who heard it was changed. They started replicating these stories. Not only did they, they kick in materially to make it possible for the disciples to do so, but they started spreading the stories in their own networks. 
By the time we get to Palm Sunday, we have the multitude, crowds, just lining the street for this huge, amazing parade. And it's so many people, and they are so loud, and they are so vocal, and they are spreading the word in that moment so vociferously that the local authorities are coming in to Jesus being like, tell them to knock it off. And I love this because presumably they're coming to Jesus to ask him to tell them that because they've tried to quiet this crowd and it hasn't worked. So where did all of those people come from? Again, if this is not a passive miracle that God is just fabricating people to line the streets, then we know it must be the result of the active work of the community over time. This is faithfulness to to the gospel of Jesus providing the word of the actions of the disciples upon hearing to dedicate their lives to spreading the word and healing people, and then the response of those people who heard it to tell their friends and on and on and on. Again, it takes a lot to get from 100 to 1,000 people, and we don't even know how many people were in the crowd that day. There is a lot of talk of DNA ancestry these days, And some people have done some math for us to say that if you want to go back just 10 generations in your own DNA biological lineage, which is about 250 years, they estimate that it took about 2,046 people to get you here. It took more than 2,000 people continuing your biological lineage to bring you into this world. And that's just from the time that this country was founded. And so when you think back 2,000 years to the beginning of the good news and you come at it from a perspective not just of your DNA or what brought your body into existence, but of the good news, what kept that story alive, who told it to whom over and over again, who had to tell it to whom to get to the person who told it to you or the people who have told that story to you. In order for any of us to hear this good news, there had to be ancestors who came before us and had the faith and boldness to spread the word through generations to us now. If you think about how many people it took boldly spreading the word to get it to you over the course of two millennia, that's a lot of faithfulness. Now back to the crowd on the side of the road, each person there had been told, and probably not directly or for the first time by Jesus. Again, this is where these networks of cumulative love and power and potential happen, that this exponential telling and spreading creates abundance. It is a demonstration of how essential spreading the word is to God's gospel of liberation because that is what lined the streets, is people hearing and sharing the good news. So I ask you, if the crowd on Palm Sunday had depended on you to help pass the word along, how many people would be there that day cheering for liberation and a kingdom of love? Spreading the word is, as we see here, a foundational part of the ministry of Jesus, and a huge part of what it means to follow and believe. Number four, 
redemption culture. Now, this is one we talked about a few weeks ago, about the intensity of our um, desire for accountability and the ways that that holy work of accountability has sometimes been skewed to leave no room for redemption. That true accountability as modeled by Jesus and as modeled by um, my heroes in the movement towards liberation has room for mistakes, has room for true accountability, has room for change and redemption. And how we need that because we are continuously messing up and harming one another. And so we need recourse for that so that we can heal and repent and do better rather than being exiled or excluded from the community. We see this play out in a really profound way on Palm Sunday. All we have to do is ask, who were the people and who were the kind of people who were with Jesus that day? We know a lot about Jesus' followers, and from our stories, they don't sound perfect. A lot of them had messed up in some really, really harmful ways. This doesn't mean that Jesus was content to let harmful people continue to harm folks in his company. He had this habit of publicly inviting people to change in order to follow him, and some could do it and some couldn't. When the rich man came to Jesus and said, you know, what do I do? How do I be faithful? Jesus eventually pushes him and says, well, for you, you got to give up your wealth. And that man, it, it didn't go over well. Some translations say he was shocked. Some say that his face sank. And it says that he went away grieving because he couldn't do it. He was invited into true accountability and redemption. Couldn't do it, didn't want it, walked away. There were others, though, who had done awful things. Zacchaeus was a tax collector who had preyed upon uh, innocent and vulnerable people for years and profited off of them. And Zacchaeus wanted in on Jesus' following. Jesus said, all right, well, what are you going to do, do about it? Jesus uh, and Zacchaeus made enormous uh, amends, reparations, really, for what he had taken from everyone. And he became a believer. But I know that the crowd with Jesus included the kinds of people Zacchaeus had harmed. So Jesus' movement had room for people like Zacchaeus. And actually, when Cameron and I were talking about this and the imperfections of the community of followers, Cameron said, you know, I'm, I'm a little less troubled by the people who had done harm and repaired from it, but we know that there were some people in the crowd that day who were about to do some serious harm, and Jesus had room for them too. Cameron pointed out Peter, who Jesus had foretold, you are going to betray me three times. And Peter was like, no, no, no. And then he totally did. But in this moment, he's in this in-between space. He hasn't done this yet, but Jesus knows it's going to happen. And yet, Peter is still a foundational part of the community in this moment because there is room. Jesus is pointing towards a better way and constantly inviting on it, even knowing that there will be people who continue to make mistakes and cause harm. And even more troubling than Peter is Judas, who ultimately betrayed Jesus to the authorities and got him arrested and killed. Judas would have been with him that day too. 
The procession of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem has room for Peter and Judas. And so the question that we have is, if we were there that day, could we make room for Zacchaeus? Could we make room for Peter? Could we make room for Judas? Because Jesus' ministry has room for them all. Fifth and last, radical praise. This group of people, so oppressed and burdened, facing empire with justifiable rage, they're coming into conflict in this seat of power of Jerusalem with the Messiah, knowing Jesus knows he has predicted his own death a couple of times at this point. And he knows coming into Jerusalem that he is facing the mechanisms of death and abuse. And he can predict what is going to happen to him. And yet, they come into the city singing. They sing and shout praises to God. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is an interesting word. And it means, well, it's pretty nuanced, but we have a couple of different understandings. One is, save, please. It's a, it's a cry for help. Save, please. And it can also be understood as a declaration of victory, which is certainly the tone that these believers have here. In that case, it would be translated more like, salvation, thank you. So how is it possible that they hold together, save, please, and salvation, thank you, all at once? There is one other translation or interpretation that is, um, that is part particularly geared towards praise. It says that Hosanna means praise God, the one who saves. It is simultaneously a plea and a thank you, a celebration and a call for help. And it is centered around invoking the God of all creation, saying, hey, we need salvation, and also, thank you so much for providing it. We know you are saving us. Now save us, and also praise. It's this overlapping uh, proclamation of joy and lament and victory. This is the nature of radical praise, which sings and celebrates and honors and laments all at once. It doesn't demand that everything be okay. In fact, it is most potent in the midst of pain and suffering when the loudest praises ring to God saying, salvation is coming, salvation, thank you, save us, please. And the empire in this moment on Palm Sunday is pressing in with their war propaganda and their military might and every possible reminder of their captivity. And that is the moment that they choose to sing of salvation and liberation and the power of the Most High God. It is a kind of confidence that becomes self-fulfilling. God is our salvation, and in praising the God of our salvation, we participate in our own blessed, holy liberation. And again, the authorities come in and say, pipe it down. These are Jewish authorities who are really worried about the backlash of the Roman Empire because they don't want those powers and mechanisms of evil to hear these praises, this confident hope in a God who saves, who will cast the mighty down from their thrones. Jesus' response to these authorities, 
Listen, if the people were silent, the rocks would cry out. And I love this. I love this because it's Jesus in his very classic kind of like lofty, dismissive way when it comes to people in power telling him not to to enact the kingdom or telling his followers to be less awesome. But it's also this image, image that we're given that all of creation sings the praises of God. And the promise of hope and liberation is built in to even what we would interpret to be the inanimate objects of creation. That the very matter of the earth itself sings the praises of God and the hope and power of liberation. It's built right into the universe. And so that when we participate, when we shout Hosanna, when we sing on Sundays, when we pray to God from the jail cell, we are participating in something ancient and eternal. When we praise God with shouting and songs, no oppressor can stop it. Because even if every human were to fall silent, creation itself would be a testament of praise to God. If you were there that day, confronting empire, facing it down, holding your potent rage, would you also be able to channel that into praise? Palm Sunday is a powerful reminder that we are called to face down empire and that our ability to do that work requires this ongoing praise and hope, the salvation we declare even as we long for it. When we praise, we participate in the disruption, the holy disruption of the way things are. Now, I believe that we could take a snapshot of any point of Jesus' ministry and see these elements play out. Palm Sunday is a potent call to face down empire, but it is also a reminder that our ability to do the big work, those big flashy moments, it really comes down to our willingness to practice day in, day out, these actions of our faith. If we want to march into Jerusalem with Jesus on Palm Sunday, with middle fingers up to the empire, we get there by showing up consistently for the important and unglamorous work, by kicking in our money and our material assets to make the work possible, by boldly spreading the word to build the movement of the kingdom, by creating a culture of redemption, where we can all learn and grow together even when it's really hard. And by bringing a practice of radical praise, especially in the midst of our true suffering. It is the day-in, day-out discipleship that makes us into the true radicals that we are called to be to confront empire. And when we follow Jesus into Jerusalem, it is there when we see it play out. This is the invitation into the public square, into the confrontation with those religious authorities and so many who have created and recreated these systems of harm. It is an invitation to confront the cross and death itself. And it is an invitation into the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the risen Jesus, declaring victory over death. It begins not with this big parade, but with the little things, the discipleship work, the practice, showing up, kicking in, 
having grace for one another, spreading the word, and worship. And so we invite one another into not just the splashy moments, but the day-in, day-out work of being transformed. Will you pray with me? God, we long to be transformed. And we are given narratives that really highlight those fancy moments, those moments of miracle. But God, we trust from your gospel and the stories you have brought to us through generations that the foundation for all of that radical work is the day-in, day-out choices we make to live as a kingdom, to love one another, and to seek you with our very being. Help us to lean into that. Give us opportunities to grow as disciples and prepare us for the fun and bold and powerful confrontations that may come our way if we are faithful enough day in, day out to show up for them. Amen.